Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Gary Cohen, Executive Director of the Environmental Health Fund in Boston and Co-Director of Healthcare Without Harm, a global partnership for environmentally responsible health care. Gary Cohen, welcome to the new school. I'm happy to be here. Now that I hear what it's about, it sounds interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So, Gary, you are the uh, co-executive director of Healthcare Without Harm, and I'll say more about you, but just starting there, um, Healthcare Without Harm started actually in this room at Commonweal about 11 years ago, is that right? 1995? 1996, September. September 1996. So just uh, how many people were in the room that day? 28. And Commonweal's executive director, Charlotte Brody, was one of those present. Uh, Cheryl Patton was there. Uh, Who else that we can count right here? was there. Lexi was there. Lexi Rome. Fantastic. Uh, Anybody else here was there? Good. And tell us what's happened over the last 10 years with Healthcare Without Harm. What has it become from those 20-some people who gathered? Um, It's become uh, 450 organizations or so in 52 countries with uh, partnerships with the major hospital systems in the United States and the Environmental Protection Agency and the World Health Organization and the United Nations Environmental Program and the European Union. Uh, It started, didn't it, around the specific issue of dioxin and medical waste incinerators. Why was that a question? We started it at the time when the Environmental Protection Agency was saying that medical waste incinerators, for which there were at that time about 5,000 all around the country, were the largest source of dioxin emissions in the country. And it was at the same time that a colleague of ours, Pete Myers um, and Theo Colburn, were coming out with a book called Our Stolen Future. And it was when we were really starting to learn that uh, the way that we've been thinking about chemicals and health was was wrong, was too narrow, and that at much much lower doses of tiny tiny doses of chemical exposure, especially in the womb, especially for um, newborns in the first couple of years of life, that that those exposures at those critical windows of development could have profound impacts on a whole set of health health measures um, that might show up later in life as learning disabilities, as cancer, as immunological problems, as reproductive problems, as endometriosis, a whole plethora of, of health impacts. And dioxin was uh, the poster child chemical that was the most powerful one that had all those cascading impacts. And we said, this new science is, is going to change fundamentally the way that we understand chemicals and the environment and health and how we should regulate them. Um, and we thought of who, who needs to understand this new science the most. 
And we said, it's got to be the healthcare sector. It's got to be the people that are in the healing industry, uh, the healing sector. And the fact that they were themselves major contributors of Dachshund was this clarion call and um, opportunity, you know, an educatable moment. And so that was the foundation of starting it. And over time, you and Charlotte Brody became the co-executive directors. And uh, last year, uh, you, uh, on behalf of Healthcare Without Harm, received the Skoll Award, which was uh, set up by Jeff Skoll, the founder of eBay. It was a three-year award of $765,000, uh, their award for social entrepreneurship. You received it in Oxford, England. Um, uh, and I'm, I just was looking at the Skoll Foundation website and, and uh, the list of accomplishments of Healthcare Without Harm over the last uh, uh, 10 years. Uh, you've closed 5,000 medical waste incinerators in the United States and hundreds in Europe, uh, virtually banned mercury thermometers in the United States. Uh, over 5,000 facilities have joined hospitals for a healthy environment uh, to eliminate mercury and reduce waste by 50% and reduce uh, uh, toxic uh, uh, construction. Uh, 84 projects with 20 million square feet of space in hospitals are being built with less toxic materials. Um, major hospitals are phasing out PVC plastics. The top purchasing group for healthcare in the United States, which represents 70% of the group purchasing in the country, is committed to mercury-free uh, practices and reducing PVC and so forth. Uh, you've started uh, organic food programs in hospitals, and the Clean Med uh, Conference is the largest healthcare conference uh, in the world on environmentally preferable practices. So this little group of 25, 30 people now um, has enormous influence over more than 70% of the group purchasing power of the American hospital industry. How did you manage to do it? <laughs> well, I'll mention just a few factors. One was that we never, we never blamed the hospitals or the physicians or the nurses for their contribution to poisoning the planet. We just, we, we assumed good faith that they didn't know. And we don't, we all don't know because we don't have the information because the information is not given to us in a way that's honest or clear that there's been a whole, the whole uh, chemical industry has uh, proliferate, pro proliferated their use of chemicals all over the globe in a way that they haven't been fully disclosing about those impacts. And so we assumed that the, the healthcare sector was a downstream ignorant user of all those chemicals and all those technologies. And if given the right information, they would, they would want to change. Because of all the sectors in society, um, here you have the sector that is built on an ethical framework. Do no harm. They take a Hippocratic oath, do no harm. 
So in the context of the global environmental and public health crisis that you referenced in the beginning, in a world where we've tr totally transformed the global climate, where we've poisoned every species on the planet, where kids are being born with 200 toxic chemicals in their body, what does do no harm mean in that world? How does one become a, an agent of healing in that kind of world? And so we presented that to the healthcare sector and said, why don't we um, help you transform yourselves? And let's pick some things that we can do together. And as we do them together, we'll learn how to do them. And as Charlotte said, and then we'll do something bigger. And we'll do something more. And it went from incinerators to mercury to pesticides to cleaners to then looking at the buildings and saying, you know, can we build cancer centers without carcinogens? challenge. You know, can we build pediatric units without chemicals linked to asthma for the kids? And it was a challenge. Um, but they have partnered with us and met the challenge. Now, we could spend a long time on the details of healthcare without harm, but you're also one of the people in the environmental health community who is recognized uh, for having an unusually clear strategic overview of the whole field. And when you mentioned that Healthcare Without Harm started with this new science that Pete Myers and Theo Colburn were bringing to us on endocrine disrupting chemicals and how during fetal development at very low doses, they could contribute to diseases throughout the life cycle in ways that we had never understood before, and therefore we'd need a whole different approach to regulation. Uh, but there was also a trajectory of the toxics movement from Rachel Carson up to the present, and how Healthcare Without Harm was part of the rebranding of the toxics movement as an environmental health and justice movement and how it was part of the movement away from legislation, litigation, and regulation toward grassroots-based Marcus-focused campaigns. So help us understand why it was necessary to move from legislation, litigation, and regulation to these new grassroots-based market-focused campaigns. Well. In the broadest terms, we have to change the material basis of our civilization. We have to move away from oil, and we have to move away from the chemicals made from oil. So we have to move to a no basis. And so, this, so the sectors of the economy, the oil industry and the chemical industry, which are pretty much joined, they don't have a self-interest in making that transformation. Their, their, their self-interest is to ride out this, this petrochemical age as long as they can make money. And sure, they'll start to invest in alternatives, but not at the, not at the speed of the damage that's occurring. It's a core product for them. It's a core product. So that means that who do we need to work with to, um, to trigger a much faster accelerated transformation? 
and it's the downstream sectors of the economy, the sectors for which they're making stuff. Um, they're making electronics, and they're making cars, and they're making consumer products, and they're making food, and they're making healthcare products, and they're making cosmetics, and they're making buildings. And if you can help them, those sectors, uh, make those things healthier without toxic chemicals, moving away from uh, fossil fuel-based uh, inputs, then uh, it works out for them. In other words, they're addicted to these chemicals, but they don't need them right. for their product if there's they're a They're the user industries. They're not the pushers. Right. And so if you can say to IBM, you know what? You can, you can clean those silicon chips with, with a mixture of uh, water and citric acid as opposed to trichloroethylene, which is you know, polluting the groundwater in, in 35 states. It saves them money. It saves them regulatory problems. And it... it, and it it works. And that's been true for what we did with healthcare that harmed to start is we said, okay, let's focus on the healthcare sector. And then in the same room, we then set up a, another thing called the Healthy Building Network to transform building practices and move safer building materials and practices into schools and hospitals and, and commercial sector. Um, there was a, there's been a uh, campaign for safe cosmetics Jeannie Rizzo from the Breast Cancer Fund is here in Charlotte, launched that as well, to um, challenge the cosmetics industry that why, why are we letting our, uh, our women and children um, put, apply uh, chemicals onto their face in the interest of becoming beautiful, but they're things that are um, linked to cancer and a whole set of other handbags. So we've, we've gone to all these different sectors and then started to detox them. Um, to create the demand for a, 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 an alternative, um, more sustainable economy. And it, it would have happened in a legislative arena, but there's no, there's not, the, the same poisoning that's happening in our environment has happened in our um, political process. So, um, so our political process has been poisoned by money of the most powerful industries that allow politicians not to make sensible decisions. And it's, it's poisoned our regulatory process, so the Environmental Protection Agency is not seen as an agency that is in any way protecting public health. In Europe, which hasn't had that level of pollution of their, and, it's, and it works in a different kind of parliamentarian system, uh, it's still possible to pass uh, legislation and regulations that can tr then provide the necessary triggers to the marketplace. But it hasn't been so possible, at least at the federal level in this country. I think that's changing on the state level, for sure. Um, and California has taken the lead on a number of issues, and San Francisco has taken the lead on a number of issues to, to signal the marketplace around the kind of economy they want to build that's supportive of healthy people and healthy communities and healthy planet. So if we were to imagine, it's an image I, I found useful, a barrel. Um, in which each of the staves of the barrel was a different industrial sector. And uh, at the bottom of the barrel were all the grassroots communities that are having all these toxics dumped onto them. And at the top of the barrel are the international treaties that we've won, like the Persistent Organic Pollutants Treaty to ban the 12 most toxic chemicals in the world. Cheryl Patton and many others were involved with that. 
and, and each of the staves then is a different industrial sector which we're trying to uh, get unaddicted to these chemicals. And the bands around the barrel are things like disseminating knowledge about the science, things like bringing the health sectors uh, through the Collaborative on Health and the Environment and others into this, uh, state uh, uh, campaigns for regulation and legislation. So there's a kind of a, a cross-sector, but these market campaigns, of which Healthcare Without Harm was really one of the first modern environmental health market campaigns, have been a critical engine for this. Yeah, the other part, I would, the other thing I would say about it is that the re, is the rebranding issue is that um, as long as we talked about the environment as being somewhere over there, out there, um, people couldn't connect to it uh, um, in many different parts of the country and many different economic classes. But if you talk about it at a, as a, being about people's health, the health of your family, the health of your kids, um, it changes everything. And so the very conscious way that we branded Healthcare Without Harm was about being about health, healthy building network, safe cosmetics, healthy cars. Um, we shouldn't have, you shouldn't have to be a toxicologist to go to a pharmacy and figure out how to buy, you know, a beauty care product without poisoning your kids. That's insane, you know? So, um, the other part of it is that the people to engage, the people who are awakening to this information are the people in this room who said they are survivors of cancer, or the people that have had infertility problems, or the people that have had um, lymphoma or Parkinson's disease, or struggle with any, any number of the you know, epidemics, the, the plagues of our time. Um, if those people awaken, to the, uh, the violence that's being done against life, that's a huge wave. That's a, that's a, that's a global movement. I mean, it's, it's, it makes it mainstream. It doesn't allow it to be marginalized. So those, those crack, you know, the wacko environmentalists over there, you know, living in Bolinas or, you know, San Francisco, it's, it's, it's all of us. You know, if you ask, if you, if you are in any room of people and you ask people to stand up, how many people you know, have had cancer in their lives or in their families' lives? How many people have had you know, learning disabilities? How many people have had trouble with infertility? At the end of the, the conversation, everybody's standing. So it affects everybody. So everybody's in it together. And that's very powerful. And I think that's what we're learning, is that it's about people's health. And that's the real fundamental rebranding. I mean, if you look at the energy that goes into the race for the cure, the Coleman Foundation, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, tens of thousands of people engaged in that effort. So imagine the race for prevention. That's a whole other thing. Imagine that. Imagine if we move upstream, instead of only looking for the cure to all these diseases, we sort of understand that we need to prevent them and that th that's possible. It's possible to prevent these diseases by eliminating some of the exposures that we have and the other stressors and the, the food that we eat and all these multi, multitude of factors, but chemicals are significant in that. That's really powerful. And I think that's where we're headed. Now, so one major piece of your work is 
freeing the world of toxic chemicals. You that know? would be good. Yeah. <laughs> you sometimes talk about wanting a world where women can breastfeed their babies toxic-free. And kids are born toxic-free. That should and, be a fundamental yeah. human right. Right. And seeing it as a human right. It's a total human right. If, I, if somebody came onto my front lawn and they, they, you know, they poured a bunch of different toxic chemicals on my front lawn, I, I would, I would you know, call the police and say that they should be arrested for toxic trespass. But you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and I'm sure that if we tested my daughter, Asha, she, there would be a whole host of chemicals in her body. Who gave the chemical industry the right to put those chemicals in her body? Nobody. I'm outraged by it. It's chemical rape. They don't deserve it. So I think kids have a right to be uh, born toxic-free. I think women have a right to breastfeed without passing poisons onto their kids. It's, a, it's about protecting the sacred, yeah? So that's the challenge, and one of the main new tools are these market campaigns. Let's just spend another minute on those campaigns, because they proved so effective that even you can read in Harvard Business Review that there's actually a partnership, that the government is sort of in a quagmire of in inactivity, and there's actually a partnership that's developed between the non-governmental organizations, the so-called NGOs, and the multinational corporations, because the corporations have so much tied up in the value of their brand, which the NGO is actually capable of effectively attacking in the media marketplace, that the corporation is forced to negotiate with the NGO community. And some of those negotiations have become very sophisticated. People on both sides of McDonald's, of Nike, of uh, you know Walmart. banks and Walmart uh, recognize there are, you know, and it, it involves responsibility on both sides. It seems to me that the NGOs have to be responsible as well as the corporation. Absolutely, and it um, requires integrity on both sides. Um, there's a interesting new development that's happened in that space, which is that. Uh, some of our colleagues have built um, uh, a, a thing called the Business NGO Working Group for Safer Chemicals and Sustainable Materials. So it's lead companies in a bunch of these different sectors who legitimately want to move toward uh, more sustainable production and more sustainable materials and want help and want to meet their colleagues in these other sectors to do it together. It's amazing. So you have Nike sitting down with Kaiser Permanente, sitting down with Hewlett Packard, sitting down with Whole Foods, and um, uh, some cosmetics companies, and um, some cleaning companies, a whole set of companies sitting down and saying, let's work on this together with these NGO campaigns that have sort of pushed them to get there. So the level of maturity um, is quite astonishing. And uh, this morning I spoke uh, to... Um, uh, 350 people at Kaiser Permanente. It's the largest nonprofit HMO in the country. And they said, you know, we'd like to use our, our power and our um, power in the marketplace and our power uh, as corporate citizens, as, as leaders in healthcare, to change public policy um, around chemicals, around climate change around eliminating formaldehyde from 
building materials by saying, look, we're doing it in our institutions, but we need, it's not enough for us to do it. We need to have it in the larger society. We can do what we can internally in terms of the hospital, but we need to have this across the entire society. Otherwise, we can't support healthy people. That's fabulous to see that happening. Hasn't Kaiser adopted its own uh, position similar to the European Union on chemical they've adopted yeah, they've adopted first of all the precautionary principle mm -hmm. and they've also said that they're going to strive to eliminate chemicals that are linked to cancer and uh, linked to reproductive problems and linked to um, genetic damage what is the precautionary principle for those who don't know it's uh, it's saying that if there's a uh, if we have enough evidence to suggest that something is harmful and we have a responsibility to act, even in the, in the absence of complete knowledge. So, um, if we know that there's a chemical, for example, that is a reproductive toxin in in um, laboratory animals, and we know that it's it's leaching out of plastics uh, tubing or baby bottles um, into children. Um, we should take a precautionary approach and not just wait to see what that does to those kids, but we should try to eliminate those exposures. If we know that the, uh, uh, the planet is warming up and it's gonna inc cause an enormous um, set of cataclysmic events, potentially around uh, the disease vectors where, where malaria goes, where dengue fever goes, the increases in asthma, um, it seems like we have enough data to act now than waiting to see, well, let's just see what happens. Now, many people may think, gee, it sounds like a good idea to eliminate toxic chemicals, but what are you going to make things out of? And uh, so there's been another extraordinarily important development in addition to the new science on endocrine-disrupting chemicals, which showed us that it they're much more far-reaching in their health effects and at much lower levels than we understood before. The good news is the news about green chemistry. Tell us about green chemistry. Well, it's, it's, it's basically saying, how can we produce molecules in a way that's, that are not harmful? It seems like a pretty simple idea. Um, how can we move to making uh, products and chemicals and goods that we need from bio-based materials is another component of that. What's amazing is that in this country, you can be a PhD chemist and you don't have to take one class in toxicology. So you don't have to ever know that the chemicals you create might harm people. And you, and no you don't have to learn about them. You don't have to learn that. You don't have to learn that. You can, get, you can be a PhD chemist without any information about their impacts on people's health. That's a fairly amazing fact. So what green chemistry is about is saying, let's start from a totally different premise. What are the, how can we produce molecules with, you know, with the Hippocratic Oath as doing no harm, that aren't persistent, don't last in the environment, that don't bioaccumulate into our bodies, that don't cause some other set of health impacts or other environmental impacts so that there's, a, there's been a, a, a fascinating movement around this and there's, print, there's 12 principles of green chemistry and there's a book around green chemistry that John Warner and Paul Onastas have written. 
Um, there so are, these are top academics. In other words, this isn't some flaky field. No, uh, Paul Anastas was, um, ran the EPA's uh, program on green chemistry until recently, until he went to Yale University. And there's awards being given every year, uh, president's awards, um, to leaders in green chemistry. So if we can imagine that we can start producing chemicals and products that wind up in our everyday cosmetics and cars and bottles and furniture uh, that are not harmful. Well, that's a pretty important breakthrough, isn't it? So I'll give you an example. This is not just some marginal thing. Um, interface Carpets is making carpets based on bio-based materials. Um, Toyota is starting to figure out how to make interiors to their cars using corn-based plastics. Um, uh, Walmart is packaging a lot of uh, their products now in, uh, in, in corn-based packaging. We'll be right back after a short break. Now, you're the co-founder of uh, a startup called Green Harvest Technologies. What is, what's the startup? What's your elevator talk to possible investors? Well, first thing I'll say is that, again, that the uh, impetus for that started here in this room at Commonweal. Three years ago, uh, Michael and a few others brought together leaders in green chemistry with um, NGO activists to say, how can we accelerate the transformation of these, um, this positive vision uh, into the campaigning that people are doing already? Pete Myers gets Pete Myers. credit for that. Pete Myers gets yeah. full credit yeah. for that. And so one of the people that he brought um, was a man named Pat Gruber. And Pat Gruber was the person who invented um, making plastics from corn and then brought the idea to Dow Chemical and to Cargill. And in a Nebraska cornfield, built the largest um, factory in the world making plastics from corn. And his view was that there was a whole sustainability dimension to this and a, ju a social justice dimension that we also shared um, to this economy, uh, this new green economy that could be built. And, and so we sat in Pacific House, over there by the Pacific Ocean in Commonweal, myself and he and Mark Ritchie, who uh, was the founder of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and now is the Secretary of State of Minnesota, and said, maybe we should start our own company to model not only the idea of producing the next generation of materials for society, the next generation of stuff from green materials, but do it in a way that um, supported people along, along the life cycle and modeled a new kind of corporation as well, where the farmers could be supported to grow the feedstocks sustainably, the products would be toxic free, and that we could create a way to support the end of life, which would be either completely recycling it again so you could make it anew, or um, or composting it. It was per perfectly compostable. So 
and, and that the profits of, of this company could also be used to help support the movement that's creating the demand for it. So you really wanted, you, you didn't just want to see green chemistry replace toxic chemistry. You wanted to create a new industrial base that was participatory in terms of the ownership of the base and who benefited from it. Right, because let's, let's say that we can green Walmart, which is a great thing, because Walmart is, is such a, a critical part of the economy, the way that's grown up in terms of monopoly capitalism. So as a driver in this market-based thinking, as a driver to the marketplace to say, we want safer electronics and safer toys and safer all sorts of stuff, greener energy for our fleets, all of that, that's a fabulous signal to the entire industrial marketplace going from China to uh, Procter & Gamble to everywhere else that, that um, safer products are the, the wave of the future. But it doesn't address any of the other injustices that the Walmart model embodies, which it destroys local communities. It concentrates too much power into one corporation. Um, it doesn't address the fact that their employees uh, can't afford health insurance. So we need to create different, a different model of business in the 21st a century. A public service corporation, in effect. We're calling it a, um, a for-profit, a for-benefit corporation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a for-benefit corporation. And there's actually a whole set of companies that are coming up um, that are uh, organized around um, this concept. And that's, in a way, that's what the, the Skoll uh, Foundation is interested in, that idea of social entrepreneurs. Because we're, you, I agree with you, we're in this moment of sort of global triage. We're, we're moving to, we're going to move to, you know, eight or nine billion people in, in a time when all of, the, all of the resources are being depleted, in a time when the climate is, is going to be increasingly out of control. And the question is who we're going to save. What kind of economy are we going to have? Are we going to save the 200 million people in, or 300 million people in Europe and the U.S. that can afford to sort of rise above it somewhat? Are we going to save everybody? And the kind of technologies and economies that we need to save everybody is very, very different than what we have now. I think Muhammad Yunus has, is showing us the model of how to do for-benefit companies with the Grameen Bank. Grameen Bank being? Grameen Bank being this bank um, that really launched the micro-credit um, movement in Bangladesh where it gives, um, it's owned by women, poor women, it gives small grants to poor women to start small enterprises um, and it has a, a better return rate than any commercial bank on the planet. and. In, um, and now they've launched other initiatives to help, um, you know, people buy cell phones, and then the cell phones are, are a source of business uh, for the people. So small-scale, um, appropriate technology uh, solutions is what we need, I think, for the 21st century. And so one of the things a small contribution to that. One of the things you've been passionate about is not letting the environmental health movement be a uh, upper middle class white movement, but 
linking it inextricably with the environmental justice movement and 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 in fact one really can't talk anymore about the environmental health movement without describing it as the environmental justice and health movement or the environmental health and justice movement. For you, uh, a big piece of that began uh, with experience you had in India uh, where you spent a year organizing uh, toxic activism. Uh, and, and specifically with uh, the Sambhavna Clinic in Bhopal, um, tell us what happened in Bhopal that makes some people call Bhopal the Hiroshima of the chemical age? Well, the Union Carbide Corporation had gone to India to set up a pesticide factory to, um, as India was um, transforming itself into more of the kind of industrial agricultural model that we have in the United States. And um, they were very, very toxic um, materials they were working with. Uh, and after a few years of the factory running, um, they really weren't making very much money. And so they started to cut back on safety personnel and they started to cut back on system repair. And uh, workers started to complain that there might be a really big disaster that was in the making. Um, and so there were a lot of early signals that that uh, that there could be a really big disaster. And then on the night of December 2nd, 1984, um, there was a huge uh, explosion and toxic gases were released over the whole city of Bhopal, which was a million people, and um, uh, of a chemical methyl isocyanide. So it, fun it, it functioned like cyanide. And so in one night, thousands of people were were killed, and um, a half a million people were exposed to these chemicals, and subsequent um, 20,000 people have died as a result of their injuries. So it's a place where we really, it's sort of the ground zero for uh, the wounding by the chemical industry. And it's a place where we learned um, how, you, how people get treated also, who are victimized. And uh, because what happened in Bhopal is that within a week, uh, Union Carbide had claimed that it was the work of, um, you know, a kind of terrorist. Mm -hmm. And so they claimed no responsibility for it, really. And then when they, um, and it's still not cleaned up. You can go to a website, bhopal.org, um, bhopal um, and the factory is the way it was 23 years ago. It's still there. It's still leaking poison to the neighborhood wells. Um, it's like, uh, it's some sort of, you know, I walked around there and it, it, it just had this feeling of, of when I walked around Auschwitz in, in Poland, it had this hallowed, hallowed ground feeling like something really terrible had happened here. And um, so, uh, and we've also learned that it's a place where we learned that it's not just, you know, the, the people who are exposed, but it's their kids. So there's a whole new generation of kids that have been born with all sorts of health problems as a result of their parents' exposure. Um, so um, I helped to set up a clinic there 
um, because the government wasn't doing very much and the company wasn't doing anything and this plant was still, the factory was still there. And so uh, we set up a clinic to offer a combination of uh, Western medicine, allopathic medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and yoga uh, to the survivors. And uh, we built a, a one acre Ayurvedic garden growing uh, specific uh, medicines that relate to the health impacts that people have. And so, uh, and then we built this really beautiful green clinic there. And so it's about people taking charge of their own healing, is what it, the story is. It's a, we, it, if it's the center of the wounding, it's also a center of hope, because if you can, if you can make something, um, if you can heal something in Bhopal, you can do it anywhere in the world. And so that, that, that the juxtaposition of this beautiful clinic, you know, growing herbs and healing people, and you know, from the top of the clinic, you can see into you can see like a, a quarter mile away to the abandoned factory. The juxtaposition of those two things is a really iconic um, image for me, and kind of captures uh, sort of what we need to do. We need to take care of people that have been really poisoned and and really exposed. And and to your point, um, uh, poor people and people of color. Um, get the worst of it. So if we're all exposed to all these different chemicals and and pollution from fossil fuels, uh, inner city people, poor people, get more of it. Um, and worse, they don't necessarily have the money for even proper health care that we might be able to afford. So there's, they're doubly jinxed. You mentioned the precautionary principle and um in Europe, they've passed this legislation called REACH, which takes a precautionary approach to chemicals that uh, if, uh, if they cause cancer or other health effects, uh, uh, that, that the, the industry needs to either prove that they're safe or phase them out over a certain period of time. And likewise in Canada, Canada has begun to take a very aggressively precautionary approach to uh, chemical issues. The United States appears to be the, the heart of the effort to keep a free market approach to chemicals that chemical companies can continue to put out 80,000 plus chemicals, most of which are never tested for safety. During the, uh, uh, I think, uh, height of, uh, when was it that Colin Powell was sent over to Europe to try to keep uh, reach from uh, taking full effect. It was very, in the middle of some other crisis, right? What yeah. was it? Do you remember what that moment was? Let's see. It was about you know, four, four years. Four, yeah, five years some ago. big crisis was happening in Iraq or whatever. And they made and a little side trip to Eastern Europe to convince them that they should vote against reach. And, and it was Colin in, Powell, the Secretary of State. Yes. So the, the level of U.S. government and industry interest in defeating a precautionary caring approach to chemicals, which is sweeping Europe and Canada, is almost at the same level as our opposition to the climate change treaty. Funny about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And that, that it speaks to um, 
the need for regime change, but not only that, it speaks to the need to get um, uh, private interest money out of politics. If you, if, if you, if politicians are, are um, beholden to the highest bidder, it's really hard to have a democracy. Um, and what we found is, I think, that the, the locus of control in our lives around this is that the more local the level, the more power we have to make transformation um, in our communities, in cities that are progressive, and maybe even at the state level. Um, but it takes a tidal wave to change things at the federal level. I mean, even now, with all of the information we have about global warming, that, uh, that there's this whole effort to continue to push nuclear power and coal as sort of the key, some of the key solutions as an energy policy for America is, is insane. You know, and they're, they're debating about whether to put renewable energy standards in an energy bill. We should be, we should be leading the global parade toward green energy, this transformation to this green economy that will offer millions of jobs to people. It's a winning strategy. The, the 21st century economy is a green economy. What other economy could we possibly have at this point? So if somebody sees that, some leader sees that and runs with that, um, it'll be create the wave that, that Charlie's talking about, you know, a big wave. And uh, we'll create millions of green collar jobs. And we, we can transform the, the rural landscape of America to start producing the industrial feedstocks for the next green economy. Support family farmers. One of the things that we're, uh, some of our colleagues are doing in Maine is with companies and with the state and with green chemists is to figure out how they can um, uh, take waste potatoes and grow potatoes on fallow land now and use potatoes to make fabrics and use potatoes to make plastics and take carbohydrates, other, other um, plants to make the materials. And, and the governor of Maine and all, everybody's with it. Like, what's not to like, you know? We're transforming the economy in a way that's healthy for people and healthy for our economy. America should be leading that parade as opposed to uh, blocking it. So green chemistry, green energy, green materials, these are the three building blocks of a green economy. Is that right? And, and, and more control over the rules by which companies operate, I think is really important so that there's more balance between the needs of people and the needs of, of private capital. How do green chemistry uh, and green uh, energy intersect? In other words, what is the role, if any, of green chemistry in moving us toward a uh, carbon neutral economy? Well, you can start to imagine that you can take um, feedstocks Industri uh, agricultural feedstocks from different regions of the world, different regions of our country, and you can make fuel from them, and then you can have a factory right next door that's making uh, chemicals. So you can have biorefineries that are making the fuel and making the materials for all of our products. And that's a whole new way to imagine the link thereof, because um, uh, 
And you can power that, those, uh, those factories without fossil fuels also. So that starts to really change the equation around carbon neutrality and toxic-free uh, future. And what about those who say that the move toward uh, uh, fuels based on corn and the like is cutting down on the foods available to poor people? That's something that uh, people are really talking about and are concerned about. What about that? Well, there's, there's a number of problems with the current ethanol uh, framework, which is that corn is a highly intensive fossil fuel produced crop. If anybody read The Omnivore's Dilemma, the critique uh, in that book about corn production is very powerful in terms of uh, it's genetically modified, it uses massive amounts of uh, atrazine pesticide, which has been linked to a whole host of health problems. Um, uh, it's subsidized in ways that are not healthy. Um, most of the corn is used not for human consumption, but for feed crop for feed, for animal feed. But really, it's not the best crop to be, we should be using. Um, we should be moving to non-food crops. And that's the real, the real transformation. Once we start to move to more cellulosic materials that gets off of any kind of food crop, then you can have different, um, different uh, energy and, 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 and chemical production that's based on the region of the world and the kind of feedstock that there is. And it transforms the politics of the United States that instead of relying on foreign oil, every state, in effect, is growing some cover crop or whatever that can be trans transformed into both uh, energy and uh, material. Is yes, that... I think that's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the things that you've thought about in addition to how this new green chemistry, green energy, green materials uh, paradigm uh, relates to the shift in, in, uh, in the economic base is how this connects to the spiritual dimensions of our lives. And um, I just wanted to ask you, for you personally, uh, you've been a meditator for many years, you've spent time in India, how did you make the connection between this work that you do on chemicals and your spiritual life or our spiritual lives? Well, I, uh, I believe that when you spoke in the beginning about hope and despair, uh, that resonated with me. Because the things that we're talking about in Commonweal, um, the things that we're understanding about the chemicals and health, the body burden that, that we're understanding, that we're exposed to, the, the, all the changes that are happening at a global scale, it could easily lead you to despair, easily. Um, and I find that having the knowledge alone isn't enough. And that if you're engaged, though, if you, if you take the step beyond the information to then be part of the solution, there's just enormous power and hope in that. Not even that we are certain that we're going to be successful. And certainly the kind of transformation we're talking about is going to, we're going to, it's going to go way beyond our lives here. But just engaging in that healing, being part of that healing process, is enormously transformative. Um, and 
it's, uh, you know, the, in, the Hindus have a word for that, karma yoga. It's about, it's about not being attached to the results. As many good outcomes that we've had at Healthcare the Harm in our, in our movement, we've had lots of out, good outcomes, but it's about the, the spirit in which we engage and not being attached to this. It's how we take care of ourselves in the process and each other in the process that's meaningful. I think there's, there's, that's the basis of, of, of some spirituality uh, that I hold. I, I think another thing is that this room and this place is very powerful. Um, there's been more than 100 and, what is it, 20 different cancer help programs or so that have been here. And so there are people that have been in this room who have, um, and some of you have, have been there, um, have struggled with cancer. And, um, and some people have survived and we're really happy to see you here. And some people haven't survived, um, but they may have been healed. Uh, they may not have been cured, but they may have been healed. And what I find very powerful is that many of the people who uh, are making up the new generation in this larger environmental health and justice movement are coming from their own personal suffering and their own personal disease and using the power of that experience to be agents of transformation in the larger society so that their healing is not only their own personal healing, but the healing that needs to happen in their community and in the world. Um, that, that, is, that is really important. Um, so people like Jackie Hunt Christensen who had Parkinson's disease and now is activating the Parkinson's community and Sandra Steingraber who had cancer and um, Alison Carlson, who was inferred, I mean, so many people, there's a whole army of, of people who are awakening that uh, their healing is tied up with the healing of the planet. What drives you personally to do this work? What is the place in yourself that has caused you to commit your life to this? Um, there's, there's a couple of strains. Uh, one is I really, I, I, I feel that the earth is sacred and I, I believe in, in the sacredness of the earth. Um, one of the things that was so wonderful about traveling in India, that Catherine knows as well, is that there's a sacred geography. People go to rivers and they go to the mountains and there's a whole iconography and mythology about being in sacred space and sacred time. And I resonate with that. I think the earth is sacred and we've, we've defaced it. We've lost touch with that um, part of ourselves that would feel that. And that's why one of the things that's been so popular in these hospitals is places of respite, uh, building healing gardens in hospitals, how powerful that has been as part of this effort we've made. Um, so one of it is, one part of it for me is that sacred connection to nature. And another part of it is this deep um, sense of justice. Um, and um, deep sense of justice about, about um, fighting for the rights of people to uh, live toxic free 
you know, to grow up with and have a chance to be healthy. And um, I feel that strongly. You know, one of the things that um, one of the things that was a really big moment for me in my life um, was as a um, as a, Drew, a Jew a Jewish boy growing up after um, uh, the Holocaust. You know, the, the strongest message that we got in that generation was, "Don't let this ever happen again to our people." You know, don't let this happen again. And um, and when I went, um, at one point I was able to go to uh, Eastern Europe and I went to Auschwitz. And one of the things I learned there, which I did not know beforehand, was that Auschwitz was actually a slave labor camp um, for the largest chemical company in Germany, IG Farben. And they were willing participants and benefited, um, not only from um, providing the gases that killed two million Jews in that place, um, but um, they had slave labor to make themselves more profitable. And so that was such a powerful experience because I saw the way in which if we allow companies or states to objectify people to such an extent that they make them expendable, that's what we have to fight against. That's what we really have to fight against. And if you look at the way that all of our kids have, you know, being born with chemicals in their body, that's objectifying um, people. That's making them expendable. And so I'll fight against that to the day I die. Gary Cohen, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thanks. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.